This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In 2009, one of the first episodes of Office Hours featured an interview with some current students, one of whom was Chuck Tedrick. Since that time, he's graduated and has been serving as minister of Calvary United Reformed Church in Loveland, Colorado. You can find them on the web at calvaryurc.org. That's calvaryurc.org. Before seminary, he studied at Biola University and worked in the automotive industry for 20 years. Native of Farmington, Michigan, Chuck is married to Michelle, and he's in town this week to meet with other pastors, and he joins us now to get us caught up in our mini-series, Where Are They Now? Hi, Chuck, and welcome back to Office Hours. Well, hello. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. You are in town to do what? I'm actually here for a classus. Actually, it's a classus contracta, which is a shortened classus or an emergency classus. One of the students from the seminary named Mihai is here from Romania, and he just graduated, and we are going to examine him. And his visa runs out, I think, before our next classus, so we're getting together for that exam, and I'm really looking forward to it. I'll actually be conducting one of the portions of his exam, the ethics exam. Oh, very good. You used a word with which the listener may or may not be familiar. It's sort of in insider lingo. It's a Latin term. You said classes. What is that? What is a classes? A classes is in our federation of churches in the United Reformed Churches in North America. We have certain churches in various regions, and I'm part of the Southwest classes. And so all of our churches in the Southwest classes, which just means basically a group of churches in the region, are getting together for this particular meeting. But we get together twice a year for other church-related business, as well as to pray for one another, encourage one another, hold one another accountable. Okay. So the word classes referred originally in classical usage to a fleet of ships. So this is a fleet of churches. Very good. All right, ministers and elders coming in from various places to conduct business. In this case, the very important business of examining a candidate for the ministry of the word. How long do these exams take? It'll probably end up being about four to five hours by the time it's done. Okay, so this is a pretty serious process that candidates for ministry go through. And it was about uh, six years ago, or maybe a little more than that, that you went through that process. Yes. When you did, were you prepared? Um, I was prepared, but it's still a bit nerve-wracking, at least for me. I was nervous. I think the elders at my church, and I was uh, doing my internship under Reverend Mike Brown at Santee, they really drilled us hard uh, and really took the time to uh, make sure that we were prepared or as prepared as we could be. We had mock exams. I went through all the material together. I felt like the time at seminary, of course, uh, was really excellent at training us and equipping us for that as well. Uh, I took a whole month off, basically, and probably about 40 hours a week, even before the exam, was preparing for it. Actually put everything on flashcards, and I would walk for hours and hours. I lost like 30 pounds. I think I need to do that again. Uh, It was intense, uh, but good and rewarding. And I think I'd rather try to over-prepare than come in with any surprises. If the listener is looking for an analogy, this is maybe something like what physicians do before they begin medical practice. They have to sit exams and things, and lawyers have to sit exams. They're called bar exams. You might think of these as sort of oral ecclesiastical 
bar exams, although there are written versions of these things as well. If I could just say a piece of advice that I had gotten from Reverend Donovan from Escondido URC right before the exam, when I was pretty nervous, he said, just think of it as having seven conversations about something that you're interested with the person who's interviewing you. If you try to think about everyone else in the room or who else may be listening or what have you, it can be overwhelming. But if you think, I'm just going to have a conversation with someone about ethics or about reformed doctrine or about biblical exegesis, it's a little bit more manageable. And it still was scary, but that was really helpful. How did you get to the point where you ended up at Westminster Seminary, California? What led you to that? For example, tell us about your church background, your church life, and how and when did you see the Reformed faith being taught in Scripture? Well, I grew up in a Christian home, was brought up in a Baptist church, and was, in retrospect, very grateful for their high regard for Scripture as the Word of God, certainly highlighted the person and work of Jesus. I knew that he died for the forgiveness of my sins. But it wasn't until later in life, until my 20s, that I also understand the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is a real game changer. For me, it it changed everything. I went forward as a kid to every altar call that I can remember, both in church, and then also I went to a Christian school and we would have chapels, constantly plagued by my conscience. I have a very sensitive conscience. That sounds vaguely familiar. It sounds like Martin Luther. In some sense, I wouldn't want to compare myself too much to Brother Martin. I think he's well beyond me in many ways, but... uh, in that sense of a sensitive conscience, never knowing for sure, am I saved? Or if you're asking me, did I sin since last time I was here? Sure. Over and over and over. And so kind of feeling like maybe Jesus forgave my sins, but I have to do something to maintain that. Or how do I know? Kind of felt like I was on a treadmill all the time of maintaining salvation. And it was uh, crushing. It was scary. So this is important and interesting because you were raised in some version of mainstream evangelical Christianity in the United States. And yet, as part of your upbringing, you're not being given any assurance. You're really still laboring under the law. Yeah, at least my understanding of it. And I never recall hearing about Christ's righteousness being imputed to me or that his life lived being credited to my account as well until college. Or faith Uh, as resting and receiving. That's right. Faith was the one thing that I did. And then you could lose that, uh, Mm. which is devastating. So when did you begin to see things differently? And how did that happen? Well, as you mentioned, I went to Biola University from 1985 to 1989. And so my freshman year there happened to be the junior year of someone you might know named Michael Horton. Yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah. And uh, I got to know Mike a little bit there. We weren't great friends there. We are very good friends now, but we were acquaintances and friends. And he and a couple other people introduced me to the doctrines of grace. I remember the first time that I heard some of them, I just couldn't believe it. I found it hard to believe, but there was also something different about what they were saying than what I grew up with, and I didn't quite understand it. And Mike at the time was very actively involved in bringing some people to Biola that may not have otherwise been there. I remember J.I. Packer came and spoke, and R.C. Sproul came and spoke, and James Boyce, people who, at least at that time, wouldn't have normally been on the radar of Biola. And there was something different about what they were all saying. And so through talking to him and through talking to some of my friends and then starting to listen to the White Horse Inn, reading Modern Reformation, listening to Ligonier at the time, reading James Boyce, J.I. Packer, really starting to read more Reformed theologians or listening, started to make a difference. And after Biola, though, I had a mini 
very many existential crisis in terms of what do I believe? Why do I believe it? Do I believe anything? <laughs> and still find myself crying out to God in that. So never really denying the existence of God. But if God exists and all this is true, why do I still feel empty? Or how do I know what's really going on in terms of theology or epistemology? How do we know what we know? How do we know anything? And had a mini crisis there and was, again, listening and reading to these different people. And slowly, I'd say probably over a 10 or 15 year period, these pieces started to come together. When I graduated, I went back home. I was in Michigan, was working in the automotive industry for about 20 years. And I was going to an EPC church at the time, a Presbyterian church, and reading the Westminster Confession, hearing some good preaching from the pulpit, got in with some folks at the church and really started to have all of that solidified in terms of understanding the doctrines of grace. But I would say at Biola, when I heard or understood or got a glimpse of the fact that Christ's righteousness is imputed to me, again, I can't even tell you what a tectonic shift that was in my understanding of who God is, of what salvation is, of what God's grace is, of what freedom in Christ means, about what the Christian life looks like, about my being able to rest in someone other than myself. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So you're working in the automotive industry Mm -hmm. in Detroit. Yep. And at the same time, you're working through some pretty heavy, difficult mm-hmm. theological questions, personal questions, philosophical questions, really big questions. How is it that in the midst of all of that or coming out of that, was it that you began to think about pastoral ministry? Well, I'd actually entered Biola originally in their youth ministry program. I had done a lot of youth ministry work with the Baptist church that I had grown up in. I had thought about going into youth ministry. And then my freshman year at Biola, I think, is when that crisis started. And I didn't know, am I going into that to fill a hole in my own life? Do I really feel called to this? Why am I going into youth ministry? And starting to ask questions about what I believed anyway. So I switched my major to business. My parents had a business back in Detroit at the time. They owned a photo finishing business that my grandpa had started in the 1930s. And so I thought, let me get a business degree. I can go back and work for them, which I did do for two and a half years. And then my dad very graciously, after two and a half years, when I realized this isn't what I want to do the rest of my life, he had kind of felt like he had to do that. And he said, if you don't want to do this, that's all right. You know, I go with my blessing, you know, slay your own dragons. I'll support you, whatever you do, which is very gracious. And that's when I got into the automotive industry. But backing up, I always had thought about it because I entered Biola originally to be a youth minister. And then throughout all my years in the automotive industry, very interested in theology, very interested in the gospel in particular, once I began to understand it more fully, taught at the church that I was at, I taught a Sunday school class or co-taught a Sunday school class, which is actually larger than the church that I'm the, <laughs> I serve at now. And I really enjoyed that and had some encouragement from some people there that I may have some gifting and abilities there. But it just, you know, it just took time that the interest was always there maybe waiting for the availability or for some growth and maturity and opportunity and all those things to coalesce in God's providence. But if you would have looked at, I used to actually write down goals or dreams, if you will, and one of them was to go to seminary. I mean, you could look back at what I had written during those years, but it was always, once I get all my ducks in a row financially, then I'll go to seminary. And now at 50 years old, I realize my ducks are never in a row financially. (laughs) So let's just go for it. Yeah, you spend your life trying to get your ducks in a row (laughs) And then they bury it. Exactly. how that turns out. So there are some theological seminaries in Michigan Mm -hmm. 
So why Westminster Seminary, California? For me, it was the only seminary that I applied to. I know that for other people, maybe looking at a variety of them or maybe applying to a variety of them would be really wise. For me, it was the teachers that I knew that were here. I had read enough of their stuff or heard them either on the radio or at a conference. And what they were teaching and what I was learning from them, I thought, I want to sit under these men and these men particularly. And then looking into the seminary itself in terms of the fact that it was pretty rigorous. And by that point in my life, I'd been working for 20, 25 years, and I thought that a more rigorous program would be really good for me, and I respected that in terms of the work ethic of it all. There'd probably be an easier way. There'd probably be a cheaper way. There might be a more accessible way. But if you're going to get up there and stand in a pulpit and say, thus says the Word of God, then we're going to get it right. And I thought that Westminster Seminary, California would be great at that. And also, in particular, the professors that were here, I wanted to study under them specifically. I knew Mike Horton personally. I'd read and seen Dr. Godfrey, Dr. Van Drunen, Dr. Johnson. I wanted to sit under these men. How did seminary affect you? In other words, how were you different coming out than coming in? That's a good question. I think I came in thinking that the gap between what I knew and what some of my professors knew was big, but I didn't realize that it was cosmos big. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And in that sense, it was humbling. I mean, again, I knew they knew a lot more than me. I wanted to learn from them. But not only did they know a lot more than me, but the way that they even dealt with or managed what they know and what they don't know, how they conducted themselves was amazing. So I remember sitting in some classes sometimes when there were things that I or other seminary students may rush in to answer. Somebody asks a question and, oh, I know the answer to that. I'd hear people like Dr. Horton or Dr. Boss said, you know, I don't really know. That's a good question. You should go ask so-and-so who's more of an expert in that, you know, in an area where I probably would have tried to answer the question myself, you know, fools rush in. And here's some men who are really humble about what they know and don't know and referring or deferring to other professors on campus. That was amazing. And then to see the graciousness and the time that the professors took, I count some of the professors here, my good friends, I would count you a good friend, Joel Kim, Michael Horton, you know, I made some really wonderful friendships while I'm here as well, and all took time to answer the questions, uh, not just academically, but spiritually, as well as wanting us to be well-trained as a pastor. What is this going to mean when I get out into a church? How did your business background, in a way, prepare you and help shape you for the man that you've become now as a pastor in Loveland, Colorado. Does that factor into the way you relate to people or the way you conduct your ministry? Or how do you synthesize those two things? I worked many years as an event manager for Audi, not for Audi directly, but for their agency of record. And that really takes a lot of teamwork. Learning to work with other people, I think that's essential in the ministry. I know another aspect of business, if you're an entrepreneur and just call all the shots, I wasn't ever in that arena. It was always working on a team. So learning to manage expectations, work with one another, how to work as a team and get things done, I think was uh, crucially important. And then, honestly, the hard work of it all. It's very difficult. And seminary, at least for me, was very difficult, rewarding, challenging, but difficult. And then the ministry is difficult as well. But I think that work ethic of, I'm going to stick to this, and I may not always be fun, but it's important, and I can focus on it. 
And even when I came to seminary, I knew that I wasn't going to be one of the brightest students here. And in my first couple of classes, I was just amazed, like I said, not only at the difference between me and my professors, but also me and some of my classmates in terms of gifting and abilities and then not wanting to take anything away from how hard they work to cultivate those gifts as well. But a significant difference. But I knew enough about me that I could do the work. And so I could put in the time, I could be disciplined enough to do the work in that aspect. And I learned that through years in the business world. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So you were a second career student. Mm -hmm. And so you brought experiences that maybe a younger student might not have, namely of getting up five days a week and you know going into the office and doing the things that you've got to do and making the trips that you have to make and making the sacrifices that you have to make. All of that helps to sort of form you into a mature working adult. Right. And then there are people that I had to answer to in terms of my bosses, as well as I led, Accountability. I led a team of 20 people. So I both had to lead and follow. I had to be able to work with those who have authority over me as well as lead, manage, help serve those who I had authority over as well. And so in the work world, that was very helpful. And of course, it's invaluable in the church. So if the listener is in a career and contemplating seminary, then he shouldn't think, well, it's too late for me. I can't go. You know, I've missed my window. No, I wouldn't think that at all. I think some of those skills are very transferable, both to seminary and then also to the ministry. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation is the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. The Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474 Westminster Seminary, California For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church So you graduate mm -hmm. and you get a call from Calvary URC in Loveland Yes Talk about that process You've sustained your ecclesiastical exams right on the floor of classes. As a candidate, you get a call. How are you going through the process of thinking about the call, praying about the call? What kinds of things are you thinking about? You know, what kinds of difficulties are you wrestling with? Sure. What was that like? Well, I was in a unique situation with Loveland in the sense of that is where my exam was. I was actually examined in front of the congregation and at the church where I knew that if I sustained the exam, I was most likely going to get 
the call. So that added for me an extra level of nerves <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, no pressure. Exactly. Right? Yeah. In terms of having everyone there. But it also gave them a chance to get to sure. you. No, I think that's great. I think that one of the things that's so important is that there needs to be, if you can use the analogy of a marriage between a pastor and a congregation, I think there needs to be that kind of relationship. I would find it hard if someone just came out once or twice and you heard them preach and they said, yeah, 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 we're going to call this guy. To get to know the congregation a little bit better and to have the congregation get to know the pastor a little bit better because, Lord willing, you're going to be together for a long time. You know, you want to, ideally, I said when I even came out to meet the congregation that I would like to marry bury, baptize, you know, be there for the long haul. Hatch, match, and dispatch. Hatch, match, and dispatch. That's it. I couldn't remember that. That's right. (laughs) That's great. But uh, would like to be able to do that. But I think that that relationship is essential. I think there needs to be a good fit. And a minister might be called and prepared and equipped, but there might be a better congregation than other congregations. Just a good fit, again, like marriage. And so wanting to see if that went together. So I had been out to Loveland several times. I think probably five or six times at least, talked about these things a lot, went through extensive interviews with the consistory as well as the congregation. The first time I went out there as an intern to exhort, I felt an affinity for the people there. I loved the congregation. I loved the area. Everything about it I liked in my own heart. I was hoping that this would work out someday. And then it was probably a year and a half later that it actually did. And, you know, praying about all those things. Mike Brown, again, who was overseeing my internship, he was really helpful in also talking about God's providence. He said, you're not called until you receive a call from a church. So if there's an internal call in the sense of, I would like to do this, I have this desire, I have this gifting, God works through means as well. And so the actual call from a church makes a difference. And we also talked about it in terms of, do you remember those cartoons that you used to watch where there's a character running on the top of a train on boxcars and you just jump from one to the other? And Mike Brown and I used to talk about it in the sense of just keep running and jumping as long as there's another car there and trust God's providence in these things. And so I was finishing seminary, running on the top of that boxcar. I was interested in Loveland. Loveland was interested in me. All green lights from everyone. So jump on the top of the next boxcar. The beginning of a call is a little bit like a courtship, Mm -hmm. and you have a honeymoon period. And then at a certain point, after a year or two maybe, the honeymoon ends, and reality begins to set in. You begin to see things about the bride that you— you know, probably new theoretically, but you begin to experience them personally and they begin to see things in you that they knew theoretically probably exist. Now they begin to experience them. Right. So now you're six years in. How is the marriage going? I would say it's going well. And like you just said, though, I think they're far more aware of my foibles and my weaknesses. I mean, and they bear with me. They love me. They're patient. They're kind. They recognize that I'm not perfect. I've been sending them emails. <laughs> exactly. It wasn't, it wasn't a big mystery. It didn't take them six years to figure it out either. But I really appreciate that. So I, I think to recognize me with my faults and to still love me and lean in and honor the position of pastor, even if the person of pastor can be a mess. And I get to know them better as well. And I think by being there longer and kind of wading through the years, instead of just saying, hey, it's been great, honeymoon's over, I'm going to go get another bride, to really get to know them enough to know 
how to pray for them, how to love them, to be there, to weep with them, to cry with them, to laugh with them, to go to kids' basketball games with them and uh, graduations with families and to hang out and be able to play euchre or have meals together. Just honestly share life together as a under-shepherd, if you will, with the sheep. You really do become, in important ways, one with that congregation. Mm -hmm. You've been there long enough now that you're beginning to develop some history Mm -hmm. and, you know, watching young people grow up, graduate from high school, get married. You're beginning to see that whole cycle of life. Yeah, Michelle and I really think of the congregation there as our family. And it is, but we really feel that try to live that, act that as well. We were unable to have children of our own. We think of the kids in our congregation as our covenant kids. We sometimes get to, you know, wind them all up on Cocoa Puffs and send them home to their parents. But uh, we really enjoy being with them and uh, giving of ourselves to them. And we receive so much from them. I know it's cliche, but we've certainly received more than we've given. But we are a part of them and they are a part of us. And we love them and hope that that is long term. I remember we bought a house about a year ago. So we'd been out there for five years without buying a house. And for us, we went there with the anticipation of, I just want one call. You know, whatever God does in his providence, of course. But in terms of my desire, I just want to serve one church for as long as I can. And so that was my thought and my heart when I went out there and Michelle was the same. And we had told the congregation that, but we didn't have a house. And I think when we bought the house, nobody had said anything to us. Nobody ever made us feel bad about it. But like once we bought that house, I can't tell you how many people came out and said, oh, we're so glad that you're going to stay. And we thought, well, we were always planning on staying. We're still trying to sell the place in Michigan because it hadn't sold and trying to get our financial ducks still in a row and all those things. But for the congregation, I think in some sense that was settling. Oh, and of course, like you said, I think other people were like, oh, no, he's staying. You know, when's this, <laughs> when's this guy going to run out of town? <laughs> so, yeah, that's good. They took it as a sort of indication of commitment mm-hmm. and identity with the congregation. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So from the time that you began pastoral ministry to now, what has surprised you the most? What have you experienced as a pastor that you didn't expect? I didn't expect that the highs would be as high and the lows would be as low. I tell Michelle almost every week that there's something that delights me as a pastor and just moves me to see someone in the congregation act out in their faith or take a step or learn something or a light bulb go off, see them love and serve one another, care for one another. I remember going over to visit a widow in our congregation, and when I got there, on her board in her room were two handwritten notes from a four-year-old and a six-year-old mm-hmm. in our congregation. It just delighted me to see that, that they had gone just over. a little thing. That. Yeah. That means a lot. I thought it was great. It moved me to tears almost. Mm. And then there are other things that the ravages of living in a sin-cursed world, either people's own sin or people being sinned against or living in a sin-cursed world itself. The ravages of those and seeing that in people's lives and trying to be with them during that, try to help, try to counsel, Mm. try to weep with those who weep, grieve with those who grieve, bear up with one another, encourage one another. Also, 
it's hard to confront as well. I remember Dr. Godfrey one time said, and if I'm saying it wrong, all the error is on my part, but something to the effect that we as Reformed Christians in particular are really great about getting sin in the sense of we confess total depravity, we're wrecked and ruined in Adam, we're not righteous, you know, there's no island of righteousness within us even, and that we'll even confess that every week in our service. You know, I'm unholy and even the best of my works are tainted. And we can say that, we can confess that, all of us together. But then when you sit down with someone to point out this particular sin that they're struggling with and it's problematic, sometimes the, what, me? (laughs) And uh, I mean, I'm the same way. I think we all have a tendency to do that. But when you get to the specifics of, yeah, this particular thing or sin is something that we need to address, sometimes that's really difficult. And there's no way to prepare a seminary student for their first consistory meeting, Mm -hmm. really, exactly. It's one thing to sit and watch as an intern. It's another thing to be in a meeting with elders and pastors and be praying and making decisions that are literally, you know, at least spiritually, life and death decisions about admitting people to communion or excluding people from communion, whatever it is that's being done. Right. And people don't take them as life and death decisions. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah kind of indifferent or shrugging at times. And when to impress upon people how important that is, you had said in a class something that uh, I remember it hitting me when you said it, but it has proved very true as a minister. You said that one of the hardest things that we're going to come up against is we're going to want to be the Holy Spirit. And I think that that's true. It's a temptation. Yeah. And so we want to rely on the Holy Spirit and that he's going to use the means of grace. He's going to use his word. But sometimes... Even in my own life, like I want me to get it more. I want somebody to get it more or um, want us all to do exactly what the Holy Spirit says, or I want them to act quicker or more effectively or now or in my way or what have you. All, you know, a reflection of my own sinful heart and not trusting the Lord enough in these things, but recognize that I need to act out on what we actually confess in terms of the Lord is going to do these things. He's going to use the means and that I need to be faithful as I can to preach the word, fully orbed law, gospel, wisdom to God's people and trust that his word is never going to return void, that he's going to accomplish everything that he has for it to accomplish through his Holy Spirit. But sometimes one of the members of our congregation put it this way, that sometimes we want to be on God's board, right? (laughs) We want to tell God, let's do it this way or in this timing. And that's really humbling and to recognize that, hey, I am doing that. And I need to confess that and to recognize that God is sovereign and gracious in this, and he's going to do it in his timing and in his way. And I'm privileged to be a part in whatever way. There's a lot of waiting in pastoral ministry, right? Mm-hmm. And you really can't teach waiting. Right. I mean, waiting is something that you learn. And you learn, I think, day by day, month by month, year by year, that we really are pastors, which is Latin for shepherd, right? You just have to be with the sheep. Or to change metaphors, you plant and you cultivate, but the process is what the process is, right? Right. When you were speaking, that metaphor came to mind that there's so many metaphors in Scripture for either building or agriculture, both of which take time. You can't build a really solid building. Right. You're not going to do that quickly. That just takes time. Right. Right. All building projects come in, you know, over budget and they take longer than you expected. And You know, when you plant a crop, it just takes as much time as it takes for that crop to come up. 
and you can't hurry it and you have to tend to it. You have to do the things that are necessary and you can't always see in the middle of the process how it's going to come out. And you don't know whether it's going to be you know 30 bushels an acre or 50 bushels or 60 or whatever. Or if the day before the combines are set to harvest and now that you're you know where you are in Colorado, you've probably seen right? Some of this harvest work. And you don't know if a big hailstorm is going to come through just as the combines are ready to harvest. Right. And then here comes the hailstorm and boom, your whole crop is gone. There are a lot of aphorisms in seminary that, again, could sound cliche, but they actually have such a rich life if you look at them a little more deeply or when you actually live them. And I remember Alfred Poyer used to say repeatedly, he teaches uh, counseling here at Westminster Seminary, California. And he used to say that it takes decades to build saints and centuries to build churches. That has come home to roost so many times in my, you know, brief time. Six years is nothing compared to, you know, what other But you're learning that, sure. you know, there's no microwave ministry, right, right? exactly. And it's really hard in our culture because that's what we're looking for. Is a microwave solution. Sure. It should have struck me before, but I was out walking the other day and I was listening to Pandora. That might even be dated now, but <laughs> I was listening to Pandora and it was amazing to me that I don't even ever have to listen to music that I don't want to anymore. I don't like it. Skip to the next one. Skip to the next one. Skip to the next one. And we're so used to that in our culture. And that's really not how biological life works. And it's not how spiritual life works either. You can't skip to the next yeah, person, it, right? Yeah. <laughs> in a congregation, you can't say, well, I, you know, I'm not going to talk to this one or this one or this one. I'm going to skip to the next track. Yeah, it really struck me that even in terms of like media ecology, we've gotten to a point where you kind of don't ever have to watch or listen to anything that you don't want to anymore. And that's not really good for us as human beings. And it's not really good for us as Christians. It used to be something you learned <laughs> when you were three. Right. Right. You stick your fingers in your ear and you pound, you know, stamp your feet when you're two or three. And then <laughs> my wife will tell you that happens at 50 as well. But uh... <laughs> And uh, your mom, your mom was like, my mom takes you by the scruff of the neck. And in our house, there was a, a hairbrush, as I recall. <laughs> and that was the end of that. I can neither confirm nor deny any actual involvement. So. <laughs> All right. Um, I know that's politically incorrect, but, <laughs> no. but I certainly deserved it. So last question. So here you are, six years into pastoral ministry, and we hope, you know, just getting warmed up for years and years yet to go. Are you glad that you left Detroit, went to seminary, and became a minister? Absolutely. Would you do it again? Yes. When you walk away from all of the excitement of planning events, the big budgets, the jets, the meetings, you know, all the things that you were involved in? Yes. I think you're overestimating what my previous job was, but yes, I, there were some really exciting things, but yes, I would. This is the most rewarding, the most challenging, the most fulfilling, and the most humbling thing I've ever done. And also, you know, throughout the time at seminary, I really do see it as a calling as well. I remember when I was applying to seminary, I wrote the, a letter to the seminary asking, you know, how do you know if you're called? And I didn't know you at all at that time, but you were the one who actually answered the letter. I wish I had it because you hand wrote it and I would love to have that letter because God used it to change the course of our life. But you sent a book by Clowney about, I don't remember the title other than it has the word calling in it. Called to the ministry. Called to the ministry. Yes. Sorry. But uh, you sent a book by Ed Clowney and then you also wrote a letter that basically said, you don't know what you want to do when you grow up. Welcome to the club. <laughs> and you said that seminary is a great place to work out your call. You said you'll be able to come and take the courses, find out, can I actually do the work? 
Is it interesting to me? Am I able to do it? Am I getting affirmation from my professors in those things? Do I actually enjoy it and can I do it? And then in addition, you're going to have 700 plus hours of internship where a church is going to oversee your work and say, they're going to have to verify, we think that he has these gifts or this call or these abilities as well. So the internal and external call are going to need to come together. And you also said at that point in the letter, you said, worst case scenario, you're not called, but the church needs more trained men and women. And Michelle and I both thought, that's really hard to argue with. Even if I'm not called to be a minister or called to be a pastor, certainly for our own spiritual enrichment and for the opportunity for us to serve at whatever church we were going to be at, that could be really helpful. And that changed the course of our life. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.